I don't say this all the time, but um, the, we are going through what we, I'm going to call the parable in the seeds and the soil. And in that parable, there are three different soils that are described. And we'll go back over that. If you haven't been with us, I'll review that in a minute. Uh, every once in a while, I feel a little bit compelled to say, this isn't going to be a warm, fuzzy one this morning. Um, even compared to the other ones I do. <laughs> um, so I, it's kind of one of those, my famous little saying is buckle up or strap in because uh, I think if there's any section of this parable that lands on kind of American Christianity and where we find ourselves, it's this section right here. Uh, next week we get to the little bit more of the warm fuzzy uh, and uh, it'll be a little bit more encouraging but the nature of what we're dealing with in this one is deeply challenging if you give it any attention at all. I'll let you vet that through yourself as we go. Let me begin by just reading the two texts that focus in Mark chapter four, verse seven, and then verse 18 and 19, and then we'll begin our venture through that this morning. Jesus is talking about seeds, he's in the third one here, and he says, other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Well, that seems pretty innocent and pedestrian. The explanation Jesus gives is this, and other seeds are the ones sown among the thorns, they are those who, these are people who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. I was uh, reading a story this week of a teenage son who had rebelled against his parents uh, and against God. For four years, he, as he lived at home, he was protesting his guilt and made uh, innumerable promises that he would straighten out his life, but nothing seemed to happen. Uh, each excuse he had seemed to be was pretty much unjustified, and each promise he turned around and immediately broke, and nothing ever went anywhere. Uh, the other side of it is how much pain he ended up causing his mom and dad because they were deeply concerned about him, and it was embarrassing for them to be this family for them, then they were living with all this chaos and his behavior seemed to not only embarrass them but seemed to get exposed to friends and other people who happened to witness it. She became so discouraged at this process that after one incident in the home where they were trying to plead and you know how parents get, they sort of get pretty intense sometimes in this discussion, that uh, she kind of just gave up. Her heart broke and she said, I'm kind of done with this. And she walked away into the other room and just said, started crying and didn't know what to do. And she was so beside herself that she basically in her heart had given up on her son. The young man, for some reason, had stayed in the living room and he happened to pick up an album and he started looking through the family album when he was a kid. And he started looking at all these pictures and something changed in his heart. And so as he's looking at this for actually several minutes, he uh, paused for a minute, called his mom back into the room, and he started showing her the pictures he was looking at. And this was him and his brother when they were kids, and of course it's got scenes of the beach and family fun times and birthdays and all kinds of things that he was looking at, and there was something that changed. And he said to his mom, when I see this, I understand why you can't love me anymore. In the picture, hope fills your eyes as you look down at your little boy, but I dashed all your hopes, Mom. Then he said something she thought she'd never hear from. Please forgive me for dashing all your hopes. The mother's hardness broke, and she embraced her son with love, 
And what moved in her was not so much the appeals or the confrontation or the debate or the excuses or all those things. It was literally the absolute desperation of giving up, not knowing what to do. And then hearing her son actually with some level of sincerity, not make excuses but ask for her forgiveness, just melted her heart. And as the individual who tells the story says, it's kind of like, that's what God's looking for. He never gives up on us. He keeps trying to appeal to us. Uh, He may not be like a parent who keeps arguing and trying to drive you into a corner, but at some point, it almost seems to us that God gives up, but it's at that time that what he wants to hear from us as individuals is, God, forgive me. I didn't realize how much I was dashing all your hopes and breaking your heart by the way I was making choices. Well, there's something about the text that we're looking at this morning that sort of forces us to think about this even in our own lives. There are three Gospels that really talk about this parable of the seeds and the soil. Uh, There is Mark, Luke, and Matthew all have some version of this, and there's details that change within them. Let me get down to the idea of the seed and compare that, because when you look at Matthew 13, the seed is called the word of the kingdom. It is really a reference where the seed is this message that comes from heaven, and I will propose to you in the simplest of terms that this represents the kingdom from heaven describing the nature of God's redemptive kingdom, where God is continuing to appeal to lost humanity, specifically Israel, out of his mercy and compassion and his grace that they ought to repent of their sin and return to him. And they've, they've normalized their sin and their religion to such an extent that they don't even, half of them don't even know what's wrong. They think everything is fine the way it is. And so this becomes God's message. And when you get to Luke chapter 8, it's simply called the Word of God. So we know that this is not just some creative message from a preacher. This is God's direct message to his people, and he's communicating it through his son. And Jesus is... Uh, penetrating the darkness of Israel and trying to appeal to them that what feels normal to you isn't right with God. That they have basically made excuses for their own sin and they've justified their own behaviors and Jesus is now stepping into that trying to appeal to them that their situation is far more desperate than they can even imagine. And so as he walks through this we discover that Luke refers to this as the word of God. In Mark, he simply refers to it as the word. It is simply that the sower seeds the word, and that's all the explanation he gives to him. If you begin to look at uh, the history of Mark in the first several chapters, the first three chapters, we get a glimpse of what the obvious is. For instance, in Mark chapter one, after John is arrested, Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And so it's impossible to deal with this parable without including the gospel. The gospel there was that they would repent and accept God's servant, Jesus, and that God would establish his kingdom, that his rule from heaven would now begin to overtake the rule of men over religion and the people. And so there's a a nuance of different in terms of what it is, but the kingdom of God was at hand because of the presence of Jesus. And they were to believe or repent and believe in this gospel. They had changed their mind about where they were at and how they were living, and what choices they were making, and they had to return to God in mass. But as you know, obviously that didn't happen. In Mark chapter two, that uh, Jesus performs this uh, miracle, 
with the paralytic and he says that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He, he heals the paralytic. And so we, we know Jesus is coming with a powerful message that's different than just managing life and managing my spirituality. They're calling for a deep level repentance in, whom, in terms of the way they've lived. And so he now is communicating part of the word is his authority. And then in Mark chapter two, we discover that he comes not to call those who are righteous or think that they're righteous, but he's coming to call sinners. And obviously the Pharisees and the scribes already think they've got it all put together spiritually and religiously and every other way they've got their act together, but those are the very ones that Jesus was calling to repent. It is within that framework that this message of the soils talks about the nature of Jesus' ministry in that particular time. And it may describe probably uh, more of that ministry even today as we've sort of compared the nature of these soils to our own reality and sharing the mission of the gospel. But let me review them quickly, just the three that we've dealt with. The first one is a pathway. It's basically a hard heart. When the seed is sown on there, there's no point for any kind of conviction, any sense of process of thinking about that truth because Satan comes along and tears that truth away and snatches it away before they even have a, thought, a chance to give it any thought at all. And you will run into people that, that will do that. You can talk about spiritual things, but it means absolutely nothing to them. In fact, sometimes it'll make them angry rather than anything because they're just so antagonistic to the reality that God is speaking to them. The second soil was the rocks. It was this soil that is rocky, and the seed falls in there, but, and it sprouts, but it has no root. And so there's no way that this, this word, this seed, this new life that comes from the word of God really takes root in their life, even though the person seems to receive it with joy. We tried to explain last week that this is pretty circumstantial. Uh, it not only would explain, you know, let's say youth going to camp, hearing a great message, making a decision, and a week later it vaporizes because it was simply going along with the crowd. It was going along with the circumstances. They wanted to be included. But it, we also realize there's no timeline to this, so people can seem to receive the gospel and go for years and then just defect and abandon the whole faith because it never really takes root in their life. And so that becomes the picture of the rocks and whatever they had, they lose because it never takes real root in their life. The one we're talking about this morning is the thorns or the weeds. Seed is sown because, uh, the seed is sown, but because of disturbances or other disturbances, the seed is choked out uh, by other things and there's no fruit. I have proposed to you all through these three that the, all these three are in fact the same. It's how it works out in the ebb and flow of the human heart. We'd love everything to be black and white. Either you hear it or you don't, but some of these give the impression that while this person did hear the word, it seems to look like from an outward perspective that they're living according to that gospel, but then they abandon it completely. And so God is giving us insight into the turmoil and the, the, the non-black and white ebb and flow in a person's heart to, to that. But all of these are the same. Ultimately, they're different from the fourth soil that we'll talk about next week where it says this soil is good soil and the person who hears it understands it and they actually accept it and it it brings forth changes in their life. And so the difference between that fourth one and all three of these, I believe as Jesus has explained in the bigger picture, these are the three that they they hear it but they don't understand it and whatever knowledge they thought they had of God and, and truth, 
is going to be taken away because they really have hard hearts and they're not listening. Now the one, this one, that is particular, and the reason why it's important to us is because Jesus is the servant. He is God's servant who is coming to serve and demonstrate what it means to live for God in a powerful way, and he is bringing the message of God to these people. He came to carry out the will of the Father, not himself. He's not doing his own will. He's doing what the Father purposed him to do. And I will suggest to you, as a beginning point in noting this, if we call ourselves servants of Christ because we claim to be believers, then what we will discover in the same way that Christ was a servant, that the only way that the mission of the gospel is going to be carried out is if we're doing his will and committed to surrendering to doing his will. And on the flip side of that, only those who are true servants of Christ are going to carry out that purpose. Other people will give lip service to it, but they won't be committed to it for whatever reasons we want to think about. But today is interesting to me because it is deeply challenging to look at the seeds and these thorns or these weeds because there's three things that he talks about here in terms of why this does not take root or does not produce any change in a person's life. Uh, The first one is the distractions of the world. The second one is the deceitfulness of riches, and the third is the desire for other things. And all these become the weeds and the thorns that will destroy the word of God from making any difference in a person's life. Now, you will read some commentators that will say, well, no, the issue here isn't that they haven't received the word, it's just not bearing fruit. And my response to that is, like, what's the difference? Like, what's the point having God's word sit there if it doesn't make any difference? Well, a person says, well, it's made a difference. They are saved, but there's just no evidence of salvation. That doesn't boost my confidence. And and so the issue becomes, this issue is, if if the seed doesn't bear fruit, which is kind of a stepping stone to the four seed, it's language that we haven't seen yet, the point is, is it doesn't make any difference. No matter how you spin it, it makes no change. It makes no meaningful change. It doesn't produce any life because it's choked by other things. Now, you see as we work through this to see whether you can relate to this at all. There are many things that we could talk about when we talk about the distractions of the world. When Jesus, at least in the ESV, says, the cares of this world are part of the thorns and the weeds that choke out the world. What does he mean? Well, the word cares is a very simple word. It really means our worry or our concern uh, or our anxiety for different things. There's three generally ways that it can be used. In fact, Jesus here will say, uh, and it's taking it from Matthew 6 and Luke 12, how does being anxious add a single hour to your life? Worry or anxiety over anything in life can really rob us and choke out the word in a person's life. You remember this shows up in Matthew 6 where it's the Lord's Prayer and it's the same kind of thing is that, hey, don't be worried or anxious about your food or your clothing or what your shelter is. And yet, frankly, those things are at the top of most people's list in terms of, you know, I want a house or I want a bigger house or it's not clean enough. Or, I mean, there's lots of things to worry about. We've got to pay the bills. We've got to fix the roof. We've got to clean up the yard. We've, we, we worry about all kinds of general things in life 
And, and it spreads to family and work and all kinds of stuff. So the concern he's saying is even the simplest things of life that we need to be concerned about to some degree can also be the very things that rob us of God's word being fruitful in our life. I don't know if you remember 2 Timothy chapter four, but Paul talks about Demas. And he's appealing to Timothy, he says, listen, I need you to come and meet me as soon as you can. But Demas, he's abandoned me, and the statement is simply this. For Demas in love, and the word is agape, which is a strange term, we won't get lost in those weeds this morning, but in his agape love with this present world, he has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In other words, he's saying he's become so absorbed with loving the things of this world, and he doesn't want to miss out, that he's, he's abandoned the ministry and he's, he's now pursuing things of this world because that's how he's gonna design, define his sense of self-worth and significance and success is chasing those things, not giving himself to the ministry. And so, and so the danger that we all face is that just worry and concern about life, our kids and our finances and our family, those things can choke the word so it has, makes no difference in our life. In fact, it's possible you're hitting, you're, you, there's some of you could be sitting here that have had so many things happen through the week that your mind's not here at all. That you're kind of hearing me, but no, you're not listening. Why? Because your mind's grinding on something that you got to fix this afternoon or this week, or you're on all kinds of trouble, whether it's financially or business or relationships or whatever it happens to be. But yeah, you'll sit here and hear it, but if I ask you five minutes afterwards, do you remember anything about the message? It's like, yeah, I got to go. I got to get, uh, something's on my mind. I'm not sure it makes it wrong, but we need to be aware of the reality that just even the general concerns of life, if we get too wrapped up in worried and anxiety, will clearly choke the word of God and it will make no difference in our life. So the first thing that Jesus talks about is just general anxiety and worry, and his warning is you can't add one hour by worrying about stuff that usually you can't do anything about anyway. Now, I know nobody here does that. We don't worry about stuff that we can't change. We only are concerned about the stuff that we can clearly make a difference with. So you're off the hook. The second one is a negative statement in Luke chapter 21, where the warning is that your hearts be, he doesn't want your hearts to be weighed down with drunkenness and cares for this life. And you'll discover that when people worry about things and they don't know how to resolve it and it starts to become overwhelming, that he includes the idea of drunkenness because that's often the way people try to mitigate the anxiety of their heart is they've got to do something to sort of self-medicate. Because the anxiety is so monumental and it's so profound and it's, it's so unresolvable in their hearts that they just can't live with this kind of torment and so they go to drunkenness or Maybe they do drugs or they do other kinds of things because they are trying to figure out a way not to worry about the stuff that they're worried about. Now there's all kinds of implications to that in terms of how do we really trust God and uh, how do we manage our stuff in life. But this is a very negative statement that basically says, listen, I don't want you so consumed with worrying about stuff that God's word couldn't bounce in there and make a difference if we pried it open with a crowbar and stuck it in there. 
And, and I don't know if you're like me, but all of a sudden it's easy to get a picture in my mind like, you know, I've been consumed so much with this issue that I have to deal with at work or whatever. I haven't even picked up my Bible all week. And my prayer life, like, other than saying, God, fix this, there's been no meaningful intimacy with God at all. Because these things tend to choke out the presence of Christ and they choke out the, the value of God's word to help us navigate through all the concerns and worries. Anybody worried about the elections? How much? There are lots of legitimate things to be concerned about, but we have to realize there's a fine line between being legitimately concerned and where it starts to take over our hearts so God's words cannot be productive in our life. The third one is a more positive statement. Paul talks about the distractions of the world. He says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety or concern for all the churches. Well, that would seem to be a good thing. So the word isn't always negative. The idea of being concerned about something can have a very legitimate basis, but the problem is anxiety, worry, concern, panic can all destroy the word's ability to bring about any fruitful, meaningful change in our life. It's like getting a tidal wave of water coming over us when you're standing on the beach. There's just no way to stand up under all that. It'll just level you. And so that becomes part of the distractions. Now, you can come up with your own list. Family, I don't know if any of you worry about your kids. Seems pretty legitimate. Elections, I already mentioned that. Finances, our occupation, or our work environment. Our personal dreams that have been smothered by COVID and people who won't cooperate. Friendships, self-worth. There's all kinds of things that can create tremendous anxiety and worry in our life. And it, we, can, we can stand around and make excuses and justify our concerns for a lot of different things. Probably the way you measure whether your concern is legitimate or not is does it squelch God's word from changing and impacting your heart and your mind and your feelings and the way you think about life. I was listening to a sermon this week. It was on Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What a perfect spiritual formula to experience peace. Yeah, right, try it sometime. What happens in most people is that they'll pray, God, I want peace, I want to give this over to you, but then they forget about verse 8 and 9. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is praiseworthy, think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. What they do is they go to God and say, God, I want peace, here's my stuff, and then they go back and go, oh, I gotta worry about this, I gotta worry about this, I gotta worry about this. So it's a spiritual formula that doesn't work for lots of Christians because they just don't follow the truth. Maybe you find yourself overwhelmed by life in, in certain ways that this really reflects where you're at. But he doesn't stop there. Oh, lucky for us. Not only is it the general cares of the world, but it's the deceitfulness of riches. Remember the theological problem that Jesus stated in Mark chapter 10, which we'll get to eventually. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Why? Well, it's pretty self-evident because the person, if a person has money, they're self-sufficient. I don't need God. I've got everything that I want. I can buy anything that I need. They tend to be very independent because I can look after myself. Their sense of success should be self-evident because I've made a lot of money or I've inherited a lot of money. And so I don't need God. Their sense of significance and self-worth is wrapped around their achievements. So the idea of God, why do I need God for? I'm doing perfectly fine. But there's also a danger of the deceitfulness of riches, not because you have a lot of money, but because you desire a lot of money. First Timothy, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through the cra- this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. And so the, the money is one of the great enemies in some respects, but it's never said in the scriptures that it's wrong to have money. It's just the desired to have lots of money. It's the idea of wealth and riches and this creates this sense of sustainability and independence and self-sufficiency. And, and Jesus warned us that the deceitfulness of riches is really public number enemy, enemy number one, even for the Christian, because if I'm so much more worried about how my money's doing and all those kinds of things, it can literally choke the living presence out of the word of God and it makes no difference. Now, I was going to say something really sarcastic, like, it's a good thing we don't live in one of the richest countries in the world, because then we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. But the danger for many of us is, I want it, I know how to get it, I know how to get more of it, and, we're, and the more I can get, the better I'll be, because as we would to it, as, especially as guys, I want to provide for my family. Well, we won't get into the weeds of all that. Because the things the scripture often encourages us to be content with aren't the things that we're content with. And lots of us have dug ourselves into holes that are impossible to get out of because we're now chained to having to make a ton of wealth just to survive. I don't know if you ever go back and read the Old Testament very often, but Deuteronomy 8, this is the very thing that God warned Israel. Remember, he delivered them out of the land of Egypt, took them through the wilderness, and was taking them into the promised land. And I won't read all of this this morning, but this is exactly the thing that God warned Israel of. He says, when I give you this land, I'm going to give you an abundant land that is lacking nothing. You'll have all the food you want, shelter, the provisions. You'll have all the resources you need. But the biggest thing you've got to watch out for in your own heart is that you're going to start saying to yourself, look what we did. We got this all because we were so powerful. We overcome the enemies. We conquered this land. This was ours. God says, like, you better remember who gave this to you in the first place. I gave you the power because of our covenant relationship. I'm the one that gave you the power to, to win this stuff. And the great danger is you're going to forget about me thinking you've, you're really special and have really accomplished a lot because you have all this stuff and you're going to forget about me and start worshiping other gods 
and then I'm going to have to deal with you. It's not a new problem. Mark Laberton, who's a pastor, told the story of a man who once appeared at his office door and asked for, some quick, asked for some quick points or bullet points on Christianity to help him make sense of the dinner conversation he was gonna have with uh, a Christian couple. He was a recent convert and uh, wasn't quite sure how to scope out the spiritual stuff in the midst of everything. And he made it clear that he was really busy and successful and didn't really have time to study a whole bunch of doctrines and beliefs and stuff, so he just kind of wanted a bullet list of here's what to talk about. After a couple of minutes, uh, he says, I can see you're really busy. I'm not sure I want to do that. And the man said, like, why not? Why wouldn't you help me? And he came back and he said, well, because if I were to give you the bullet points and you were to really understand them, they might work in you so significantly that your life could really get messed up. You would have to rethink the meaning of success, of time, of family, of everything. I don't think you really want me to do that to you. Now, obviously, it was an effort to raise his thirst, not just give answers, and in that particular situation, it worked. That man met with him on a regular basis to actually learn the substance and the reality of what Christianity was about. But there's lots of Christians who just want a bullet list of things so that they can say the right answers and see if they can appeal to God to rubber stamp their choices rather than doing the hard work of being deeply rooted in Christ and allowing the word to reshape their thoughts and beliefs and values and priorities. I haven't got time for that because if I allow that to change, I might have to change everything that I'm doing. And then finally, he talks about the desire for other things. (laughs) What, we didn't cover it already? Like, what else is left? I already mentioned Matthew 6, where Jesus says, don't worry about the general things in life. But the point that I didn't quote is Matthew 6, 32 and 33, where it says the Gentiles, they've mastered this stuff. They, They make this their whole life devotion the accumulation of stuff. They define their success by their stuff, they define their significance by their money, they define their self-worth by their reputation. The Gentiles have this master, they know how to do this. They really got this locked in and they know how this works. But he says, I, that's not the way, you're to seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. But for many of us, the danger is, is that even the idea of stuff has choked out the word of God and it makes no difference. It bears no fruit. It brings about no changes. There's no sense of the life of God in us because that truth, I understand it and I know it, but the question is, what difference does it make? The desire for other things is, can be profound. We live in a workaholic culture We live with narcissistic priorities. We're experience-driven people where the more different kinds of experiences you can have in life, the better. And I love sports, grew up with sports, played a lot of sports. But I've seen some families that, you know, their kids in like six different sports all at the same time. Because I want to give them a broad base of experience. I think I've told you the story of the baseball coach back in Portland 
who told me one time literally, and I know some of you have heard this, so I apologize for repeating it, but it fits the, fits the problem exactly. He had two twin boys, great baseball players. He says, these, he literally told me this, they're my retirement program. You've got to be kidding me. A bigger and better mindset that self-worth significance is defined by success and the attitude of entitlement. Whatever I desire, I deserve everything I need or I deserve everything that I want. I mean, that's the culture that we're living in. I want to tell you a story from the Old Testament to finish off. I don't know how many of you wandered through the book of Jeremiah lately. Um, may not be casual reading for you, but I've been reading through there. And uh, Chapter 35 talks about Jeremiah going to the Rechabites. Uh, I know that I'll have to explain a little context, otherwise this won't mean anything. But Jeremiah was a prophet at the end of the life of the, the two kingdoms. There was Israel and Judah. Israel had already gone into exile. Judah was kind of at the end of their rope. Jeremiah was the prophet that was speaking when Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldeans were gonna come in and destroy everything and take everyone captive. They did it in cycles, but that's where the timeline is in this. And one of the things Jeremiah was told by God to go is to say, look at you guys have had Hebrew brothers and sisters who went into debt and you took them into your family, they became your servants and slaves to pay off their debt, but as part of the covenant relationship, after six years, in the seventh year, they were to forgive everything if it wasn't paid off and they were to let them go free but they had been ignoring that law for for decades. They weren't doing that at all. So Jeremiah was sent by God to say, I want you to to make a covenant with all of the people and set these slaves free and give them their freedom so that you start obeying God. So they made this covenant and they established this covenant with everybody, the the masters, slave owners, as it were, let these people go free and then all of a sudden they went, now what am I gonna do? I need these people to make this work. So they made the covenant, let them go, and then they went back and rallied them back up, brought them back and re-enslaved them so that they could get their work done. So God tells Jeremiah, he goes, all right, here's what we're going to do. I want you to go to the Rechabites, and the Rechabites was kind of a, a tribal community, and they had made a promise to their father, Rechab, and, and so all of the brothers and sisters and the cousins and aunts and uncles, they're called the Rechabites, so that's a person's name, not some weird category of people. But they, were, they had seen all this luxury and license and abuse going on in terms of wealth and riches, so they had made a deal amongst themselves that they were gonna be nomadic. They were going to, they're not gonna build big houses, they're not gonna have big farms, they're not gonna you know, have big businesses so that that becomes a distraction, and they were gonna abstain from things like wine. So Jeremiah takes them, he hauls all of them to the house of the Lord, and he fills up all these vats with wine and puts cups in front of them and says, look, you guys need to be celebrated because you're different than everybody else. Go ahead and have some wine as, as a celebration. And they looked at it and went, not happening. We're not doing this. Jeremiah says, look, I'm a prophet. You can do this. And they wouldn't budge. And the reason they came back to Jeremiah says, look, we made a promise to our, my earthly father that we were going to be different than everybody else around us. And it doesn't matter whether it's you or anyone else, we're not budging from that commitment that we made to our father. So we're not doing this. And God comes back to Jeremiah and he goes, think about this. 
These people have made a promise to their earthly father and they're not moving off that for anything. Even when I told you to go and try to bait them into compromising, they wouldn't do it. And he says, but I've been sending you and other prophets to speak to my people time after time after time after time and they won't listen to me. And so that's why the Chaldeans are going to come in here because I'm going to have to hit them with a two by four because they're not listening to me. You know what struck me about this story other than the obvious? What struck me about this story is that sometimes people are far more committed to their human commitments than they are commitment to Christ. They'll keep, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's sports or a hobby or a business, they're sold out committed to making sure that happens. I remember when we were growing up, the big issue was youth group because we were all in sports teams. Now back then they usually gave Wednesday night off so we had the freedom to do it. But the, the, the argument that some people made because their kids wouldn't come to youth group is, well, if they miss practice, then they're not gonna start. So we're, will, so we're not gonna let that happen. And, and, and this is the same kind of thing here, is that people will put far more weight and significance on their human commitments to other people and other organizations and other things that really catch their heart and we're not even listening to God. And these people, Israel, couldn't even set their slaves free and let them have their freedom. They had to haul them back in here and re-enslave them because it was detrimental to their business. Now, I don't know if anything afflicts American church more than this kind of stuff. Because our hearts are worried about so many earthly things that we are so caught up in being successful in earthly things that there are individuals who are Christians basically by a placard only because they never really experience the power of God's word to change life because it's constantly being barraged and choked out by the things of the world. Told you it wasn't gonna be a warm fuzzy. Do you remember Jesus' statement in Luke chapter nine? If anyone would come after me, let him deny self and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's a good starting point. Are you at least aware of the weeds that are in your own life? That clutter up your own heart? That you're willing to give more time to that than even the basic Christian disciplines that would keep you healthy and rooted in Jesus? Boy, we live in a dangerous culture because if there's anything that plagues and will constantly barrage you and me, it's this part of the parable right here. Everything is so important and so necessary at times except for the things of God. I want to encourage you that even with the Rechabites, when they first made the covenant and set them free, when Jeremiah came back to him, he says, you know, at least for a moment, 
you did the right thing. You made this covenant and you set them free and that was exactly the right thing that God wanted you to do. And I want to encourage you that even though they messed up, all that it takes is one step in the right direction to do what God pleases. And I believe he will bless you for that. But for many of us, we got a lot of weeding to do. There's a lot of thorns and a lot of things that have choked out the word of God because they're so important. And yet the problem is, sometimes our passion and our desire for Christ and his word is so diminished that you can hardly recognize it. My encouragement is, get in the word, be part of, of a group of some kind that brings encouragement to keep your life spiritually aligned to Jesus. Confess your sins to Jesus when the weeds are far more powerful than the seed. Maybe this morning you need to take one step towards Jesus on one particular weed that's growing in your life. It's okay to do that. Father, we...